Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about the weather first, and <laughs> and then we talk about like film stuff. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. It is currently 69 degrees in Southern California, but the high today is like 80 or something, 80, 90. I don't know. How is it cooler in California than it is in New York? The high today is 90 in New York. <laughs> it is very warm. It's not too bad yet, but um, it, it's definitely getting hotter. Uh, I'm going to guess it's because the wind is blowing the correct direction. So we're getting all that beautiful ocean breeze and yeah. you're getting all the like gross midwest like funk yeah and we we had we actually had some very nice weather for the past few <laughs> days so um so we're kind of due for a temperature spike anyway so that is the weather report in california and new york the two coasts uh it's the content that people want this is exactly we, we're not going to rehash our, our slack argument about which city is the best city because I mean, we don't need to because that was no. answered by a yes, study it is. So, it by a scientific study that declared people would rather go to florida <laughs> than because, new york that's because they're probably talking to people from like north dakota <laughs> who only know times square and disney world like i'm sorry i'm sorry people from north dakota but it's true you only know that new york consists of like times square and then maybe like the empire state building or something like that tell me where the empire state building actually is in new york city that's something that uh i would like to find out from people who do not actually live here you don't have to know you just get in the cab and say take me to the empire state building and they do get in the cab <laughs> get in the cab and say, jesus christ anyways so yeah, don't come here because you're really annoying. Like all the tourists are so fucking obnoxious. That was one of the only good things to come out of the pandemic was that there were no <laughs> tourists anywhere. Well, I mean, on that note, also just don't come to California either because go to mess Florida. up our freeways. <laughs> yeah, go to Florida. If you're traveling, if you're a visitor, go to Florida. Go to Florida. I apologize. They really to, want you there. I apologize to any listeners from North Dakota. I just definitely like i would did a very new york thing it was just like oh there's people from north dakota like although <laughs> yeah anyways i don't think anybody actually lives in north dakota have you ever met anyone who's ever lived in north dakota no that's true mm -hmm. that's true because there's like five people there um yeah. i'm gonna get like some some someone that we know is going to southern Chicago. Like, by the way i'm from north dakota <laughs> yep <laughs> and it's the best place in the world <laughs> Anyways. You know, it, maybe it is. I've never been there. I could be missing out on an entire amazing experience. Yeah, I've been to a lot of states I have not. I may have driven through the Dakotas at some point when I was a child traveling with my parents, but I, I honestly have no idea. Um, so anyways, yes, we're sorry. Send all hate mail to Karen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait. <laughs> 
So <laughs> today we have a whole bunch of different stuff to talk about. Actually, we're going to talk about Tribeca. Um, we're going to talk about hot dads. And I want to touch on some of the controversies that have been going on this week. Uh, some of them rather amusing, some of them not. Um, but to start out with, I think that uh, I really wanted to talk about the Anthony Mackey interview um, that went down on a Variety podcast this week, and more particularly, not just really about what Mackey says in this interview um, about the relationship between Sam and Bucky on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but just generally about this issue of queerness and representation in mainstream media, since this is still Pride Month, and this is an important conversation to have, I think. So um, Mackey, during the course of a lot, this is a long conversation. This is like an extended interview. So it's not, he's not just being asked about this, but at one point he was asked about um, uh, the, the interpretation, the fan interpretation that Sam and Bucky are uh, sexually attracted to each other. And his response was, so many things are twisted and convoluted. There's so many things that people latch onto with their own devices to make themselves relevant and rational. The idea of two guys being friends and loving each other in 2021 is a problem because of the exploitation of homosexuality. It used to be guys can be friends, we can hang out and it was cool. You would always meet your friends at the bar, you know? You can't do that anymore because something in, as pure and beautiful as homosexuality has been exploited by people who are trying to rationalize themselves. So, and he goes on to talk about um, you know, it being important to him that he's playing this sensitive masculine figure. Uh, and that this is about friendship and things like that. So there's a lot to unpack, I think, in his commentary. First of all, because some of the things that he says have been rightly picked up by a lot of people being like, what are you saying exactly there, dude? So like people latch onto with their own devices to make themselves relevant and rational. That feels very, not necessarily homophobic, but it feels like he's he's trying to say something without saying it. Uh, and so a lot of people have interpreted this as, as a somewhat homophobic comment. Um, it's his response, I think, is interesting. And again, with the caveat that I'm a cisgender white woman, um, so I'm coming at this from my own perspective. Um, but some of what he says. I don't necessarily agree with, but I do understand what he's trying to say. He's, you know, he's obviously viewing this relationship as a friendship and it's, it's a loving friendship. It's a friendship in which these two guys really care about each other, but they're not sexually interested in one another. They're not romantically involved with each other. And there's a certain amount of, I think, honesty there that, that it's saying like, you know, men sh definitely should be allowed to express affection and love for other men without it being sexual or romantic love. And we have this tendency to kind of go from one, one to another. If men touch each other, if men hug each other, if men express love for one another, then we automatically are like, oh, well, they're gay, which isn't very fair and doesn't allow for that more complicated and, and loving kind of male friendship. On the other side, <laughs> Um, you know, this has been something that a lot of people have interpreted as, as homosexual. Um, this particular relationship that, the, that they view the way that these two characters relate to one another as much more romantic or sexual than just, you know, guys being bros. So I think that this is a complicated issue, but um, Karen, what do you think about all this, about what Mackie said and uh -huh. this problem? Because it's... yeah. 
it's it's problematic. I, what he says is problematic, but I think it raises an interesting issue. Yeah, I don't I don't think that he was trying to be problematic. I don't think he was trying to say anything that was homophobic. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. But I think that it did. I, th I think what he said got twisted and convoluted by his mouth as it was coming out. Um, and I think that I think that the we'll, we'll talk about the issue of the question in the first place in a minute, but uh, specifically to address what he said, I think that his point is um, I think that his point has validity in that he is a guy who, you know, really cares about this character that he's been playing. I think they both were introduced in the same movie, right? In, um, in the Winter Soldier. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. And um, anyway, so they've both been in the MCU for the exact same amount of time. Um, and and I think that he's looking at this for himself. He's looking at it as this show is kind of the culmination of a really, um, a really interesting antagonism, animosity that turns into collaboration and eventually friendship between these guys. And that's all he sees. But that's because he's been in the middle of the experience and he's not seeing what what fans are watching, which he part of the problem is that and we see this a lot, not just with him and this and this response, but with a lot of people in the business that are just there. There's this like attitude against fan fiction. And I think a lot of that has to do with like a complete um not just dismissal, but like a misunderstanding of why that exists. It's not just because people just can't give up on the stories. It's because they're looking for ways to make those stories represent them too. And so much of, of what we see on screen, especially, and other people have pointed this out too. This isn't just me, you know, being philosophical or whatever, but you know, other people have pointed out as well that uh, Disney has a problem when it comes to representation not just in gender and race, but particularly with the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. And, and so even when they do have these token moments, you know, like um, Anthony Russo playing a gay character in a support group in, in Endgame or um, LeFou having like a dance with a guy at the end of, uh, uh, oh my gosh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, you know, these moments that are very easily erased when they take them, when they take those movies into other territories that are not friendly to uh, the LGBTQ community. And so you have so much token representation that's not real representation. And so the fans want to feel like they're part of this and so they create a lot of this fan fiction and i feel like what what he's saying when he's like twisted and convoluted they latch on and make the you know make themselves relevant i i i feel like that's him not understanding why people get so invested in their own versions of these stories and and not only not only is it dismissing that but i think that it's really doing a disservice to those folks because there's some really creative fan fiction out there that's actually sometimes more brilliant than the original work that it's based on and i just i don't know i i think that's really ultimately the problem and it's it's mm -hmm. not that he's incorrect because i think that 
that looking at again as a cisgender you know white woman and all that i'm looking at this going well yeah they're friends and it's a really nice friendship and it's nice to see men being friends to each other especially when they started off trying to kill each other you know but i also am not part of a community where i feel like i've always been outside or you know downright attacked and I think that when people are asked these kinds of questions, which is a whole separate issue, um, they, they need to step back and be a little bit more mindful of that. And like, think about who they're really talking to when they, when they give these kinds of answers. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that, um, his, his answer raises a lot of issues and the question itself raises a lot of issues. Um, I definitely, I mean, when, yeah, when it comes to Disney, where you have these, like, you know, so most recently in Cruella, they, they were saying like, oh, there's, there's an LGBTQ character. And it was, <laughs> and it was never even, like, it was a guy who was stereotyped, basically. Yeah. And, and it's never even mentioned, like, you know, numerous people were like, well, it's never mentioned that he sleeps with guys or anything like that. So what never is said. this? You know? nope. and, and we keep on getting this where, you know, that things are being touted as just like the first LGBTQ character in a Disney film. And you're like, well, but it's not really because you're not actually exploring the relationships that people have. You're not and actually- And also how many times are they going to pat themselves on the back for that exact thing? Yeah. How many exactly. times have we heard that? Exactly, like I, uh, the the Pixar film um, Onward, right? There is an LGBTQ character in that, but it's it's a glancing reference, and again, it's the kind of thing that can easily be eliminated mm -hmm. if you are, you know, cutting it down for anybody, basically. So it is kind of Disney wanting. It, it does give the impression, definitely, I think, of Disney wanting points for being inclusive but not being willing to actually be inclusive because they're worried about their bottom line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really good point. When it comes to something like fan fiction, I think that the fan fiction and this issue of representation dovetail with each other because like you say, fan fiction, a lot of what fan fiction is, is about fulfilling something that the, the canon, as it were, is never going to give you. So we're never going to get Sam and Bucky sleeping together. We're right. never going to get uh, Steve and Bucky uh, having a confirmed relationship, right? As much we could get hints of it, we could get subtext, but we're never actually going to see that. First of all, because Marvel is allergic to sexuality, period, but definitely allergic to homosexuality. And so we're never actually going to, to get to see that. So fan fiction fills that gap. It, it, and that's what it's done since fan fiction became a thing. Um, but the problem is if canon was actually representing these things, if canon was actually dealing with this stuff explicitly, right? And it, and it stopped being just subtext, um, the fan fiction would be different and people would not be approaching it in the same way. So to kind of fault people for wanting representation um, with these two characters that are important to them for other reasons and for seeing, uh, you know, sexual attraction or romantic feelings, et cetera, in characters where that the subtext is definitely there, but there's never going to be the overtext. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that we also need to talk about just how 
frustrating it is that these questions keep getting asked to the actors themselves yeah and so this came up um in a really excellent thread that that we'll link in the show notes um by uh, z at zr elor talking about specifically he talks about a lot of different things but uh specifically about the fact that the interviewers even asked the question to begin with and this is not an uncommon question in recent years to ask actors about um, their, about like fan fiction or fan art about their characters, about fan interpretation. And I think that one of the issues is partially that the notion of fan has narrowed so much. The relationship between the fan and the product is so close and fans have affected, as we've seen this with things like Justice League uh, with uh, Star Wars, fans affect the way that things play out on TV shows, on films, et cetera. So there's a really close relationship to that. So it kind of makes sense that there would be all of this kind of um, uh, conflating what fans are saying and what the reality is on the show or what the subtext actually is on the show. But yeah, the, the issue comes up is that, you know, you kind of like, okay, well, what was Mackie supposed to say? You know, like, yeah. yes, they're in love. I mean, because that would be making a declaration, certainly. But um, but that's that's essentially saying, like, he's he would be making canon, he would be fulfilling something that probably Disney, I mean, Disney does not really want, Disney and Marvel do not really want this to be explicit um, in, in the slightest. And so one of the things that um, C.R. Eller goes into is that, you know, that there's this massive shipping fan base for these characters and that Disney's exploiting that to get views um, while not making the paramantic system not lose homophobic viewers. So it's exactly what we're saying. Disney wants both, basically. Yeah. Um, And then you have these actors who are basically put on the spot and asked the questions when really the, the, you know, at the end of the day, these guys are not, it's not up to them. It isn't up to them what happens explicitly on the screen. You can play it that way. You can play that these characters have an attraction to one another, but that's going to wind up being up to interpretation. It's not going to be ever like Sam declaring, I'm in love with Bucky. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, yeah, there, there is a problem with actors being constantly asked to this and being asked to respond to also a sexualization of their characters and by extension, sexualization of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, to say like, oh, by the way, fans are imagining you you and your co-star having sex. It's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, definitely studios like Disney are, are partially to blame because of like what we were talking about, you know, a bit ago, because of this way that they have of just giving crumbs and then expecting people to just you know be fine with that and and but also they know that people aren't just fine with that and they're gonna have questions the other problem too though is these uh the trades you know you've got variety you've got the hollywood reporter you've got you know the guardian you've got all these other other publications who perpetuate that because I have no idea how this interview played out. I don't know if this was on a list of talking points that someone gave the interviewer and said, hey, make sure you get this in. But that kind of thing does happen a lot. And that's why you end up with reporters who are asking really stupid questions on in interviews. Sometimes it's not that it's a bad reporter. It's that they have been told by their boss, you will ask this question. And it's, you know, it's partly 
to draw in more clicks. It's it's all about driving more attention. Like, oh, we're gonna get this, uh, we're gonna get this question in there. We're gonna get this story out there. We're gonna get a soundbite for it, and we're gonna make sure that everybody hears it. And they don't care if there ends up being an attack on someone like Anthony Mackie, as long as they get their clicks. And then Mm -hmm. furthermore, then they doubled down by making sure to put part of that quote and probably like the most inflammatory part of the quote into a tweet to make sure that people are going to argue, you know, how many people argued about this whole story without ever actually listening to the question that he was asked or the answer that he really gave in total without even probably reading the article that that talks about the interview like they just they they start to hear sound bites and that's not i'm not even totally blaming the people like this is how this stuff is set up and that's this is the thing is whoever handles variety social media knew perfectly well what they were doing when they tweeted out the story in the first place and so it's disney has a lot of the blame here but so does variety yeah, that's that's all a really good point. It's um, it's important to note it's important to note the fact that um, interviewers and and trades are making choices about what they're asking people, and uh, and and yeah, they're they're driving. It's it's for clicks. It's just like oh, if we can get Anthony Mackie sounding like he's homophobic, people are going to people are going to listen. People are going to read. People are going to click on the link, and that's really what they they want engagement. And and Twitter is very much you know we're we're specifically talking about Twitter here. Twitter is very much set up for that kind of outrage. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been like, guys, read past the headline, yeah. you know, about anything. You know, people just retweet articles without actually reading them. Um, at the same time, you know, it's not necessarily letting Mackie off the hook. But definitely there, there is that sense that he's being put in a position that he really shouldn't have to be in. Uh, and, and also it's not the responsibility of the actors in particular to fulfill whatever the fans want. And, and because it's not up to them. At the end of the day, they don't have a choice in this matter. They can want things that then don't play out. Uh, so I don't know, it's, it's an interesting issue and it's one that's gonna keep on coming up because the fact is we need more explicit representation mm-hmm. in mainstream media particularly. Um, and that's one of the, the, because, so one of the things that, that Mackie is talking about here is about this, you know, can't we have male friendships that are close and tender and loving that are not sexual? And yes, we absolutely should be able to have that. That's something that should be represented on screen. I, I, I completely agree with that. The problem is that there are so few explicit homosexual relationships, bisexual relationships that, especially between major characters, you know, you're not going to find this in the MCU at all. Um, and because of that, you, we're, we're still in the position where fans are trying to find the subtext. You know, we need to have the text. We need to have this moment where we're like, okay, we're actually going to have LGBTQ characters for um, fans to identify with, for fans to engage with, that so that we have that spectrum of representation. And when we have that, that also means that we can have representations of male and female friendships that are loving without being sexual. We can have it all. <laughs> exactly you just have to do it and um, i have to be willing to sacrifice a few markets 
in order to really do that and they have to decide what is more important ultimately and that also you know what that also goes for heterosexual relationships i'm not going to go into details about this but we should be allowed to have batman go down on catwoman like we just should (laughs) yep (laughs) because he definitely did hello i mean she's catwoman she's not gonna let him not (laughs) yeah i don't think she'd stay with him honestly just like the look, look there is like there are some things that we need to discuss there bats um i liked the fact that i i'm really sorry to anyone who's not on twitter i'm not gonna go into like explaining where this all came from this was an issue that was discussed um but i like one of the things is that a number of people did is break down which batman would and which one which ones wouldn't so michael keaton everyone was like michael Ke- keaton's batman 100 percent for sure 100 for sure. and then there were disagreements about ben affleck's batman and um val kilmer's i think val kilmer's definitely i can yeah. say that that like yeah. that relationship is very yeah uh, <laughs> anyways <laughs> So, so any anyways, uh, let us move on to talk a little bit about Tribeca. Uh, we have been watching some films from Tribeca, which is going on, I think, until the middle of next week, end of next week, something like that. It's really weird for me because I've been covering Tribeca for many years now. And last year and this year, of course, the first ones where I haven't been there in person. Um, even though they're doing some in-person things and some not in-person things, which has uh, created a lot of kind of resentment and annoyance for a number of press. Um, but one of the things I've liked about this year is that I have actually gotten to, to sit at home, you know, watch on my TV every night uh, a documentary or something from Tribeca, which I like. I like the fact that I'm not having to schedule my own work around um, around you know attending press screenings some of which by the way some of the pni screenings uh at tribeca can be at like nine o'clock in the morning which i live in brooklyn is like that's not that's not happening i don't care how great the film is it's i'm not going to trek into uh downtown manhattan or wherever the screenings are taking place at like seven o'clock because No, you can't make me do that. I'm I'm a freelancer. One of the reasons why I'm a freelancer is so that I do not have to get up early in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah. But so there have been some really interesting films, I think, that have been on, um, at least in terms of the virtual festival, and, and there are others that are obviously just part of the in-person. Um, so I want to start with you, Karen. Are there ones that you have seen so far that you just really w- want to recommend or want to say, like, dear God, avoid this film? Uh, a couple of both um okay so i have to preface this by saying that it's been a really really crazy busy like week and a half so i haven't gotten to watch as many films as i normally would have by this point i've only seen a a couple um but i uh there's one that i actually meant to tell you to watch it um because i'm i really would like you to see it and i'm curious what you would think and that is called i carry you with me have you is that on your list that's on my list but i haven't seen it yet okay dang it i should have told you to watch it so we could have had like a really good conversation about it but um yeah so this is a really interesting uh it's a really interesting film by heidi ewing and it starts off it's um it's an lgbtq story it's about these two men in mexico who meet and they fall in love and they 
they both have these like big dreams and they decide that, that the only way to really accomplish what they want to is to cross the border and they have to do it illegally because they just don't have the means and it takes a really long time to try to do it um, legally. And so eventually like it, it, it's, it's them deciding to, to do this and go on this really um, terrifying and dangerous journey. And I don't want to give anything away as far as, um, as far as how the story itself plays out. But what I find so fascinating, besides the fact that the, this love story is really just is beautifully told, the movie is half narrative and half documentary. And it's really interesting because it's like you get to a certain point in their story and then some time passes. And once you pick up with them again, it's like, wait, (laughs) this feels like documentary footage. And it turned out it is. And so it's like you find out, you catch up with them later, you find out what happened to them from them. It's the real guys. And it's it's not it's not fictionalized or anything it's it's just it becomes a full-on documentary about them and so it's fascinating the way that those two um mediums are blended together and it's it's very very good and it's a beautiful story so definitely watch it that's really interesting yes i will check that out that's i i didn't realize i because i i remember seeing it and and i think a few people have been talking about it but um i didn't realize that it was like a, a a combination of, yeah hmm, that's that's a that's a fascinating idea oh, yeah it really that. is and and i think that the reason it works so well is because you have a documentarian who knows really how to develop a really interesting compelling narrative in a documentary and then she's able to translate that just so beautifully into this more fictionalized account of, of their journey for the beginning. So you're right along with them. You've got these two really great actors and, and so you're just along for the ride. So when it switches over to documentary, it's not shocking. It's not off-putting. It's very like, Oh, this is cool. All right, cool. I'm in it. I'm, I'm, I'm following this. Yeah. That's, that's a difficult thing to pull off really mm-hmm. um, being able to make that shift without it being it being shocking or being like wait a minute what's going on yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's very cool so bump that up on your list make sure you watch it i will well i let's see what what do i want to talk about i i I will mention very quickly um the film no ordinary life which that's on my list (laughs) yeah i don't know i know i recommended it i don't know if you've gotten to see it yet um but it's about, uh, it's a documentary. And one of the things I do really love about Tribeca is that their feature films can be spotty. They have some, they sometimes have some really good stuff and some not so great stuff, but their documentaries are very often like right on the money. And this one definitely is. Uh, so this, this is about five kind of pioneering camera women um, who went into war zones uh, and, all kinds of places, really. They, you know, these these are women that covered the um, Rwandan genocide and the aftermath of that. That covered Sarajevo. That covered, um, you know, that covered the invasion of Iraq. Uh, all of these different things, and it's these five these five women, all of whom kind of tell their own stories and talk about being women um, within these situations. Who, you know, to be camera camera women um, and taking you know, live footage of these events. 
and the extremity of it, the toll that it took on them as human beings of getting to observe this, but why also why they did it and how they engaged with it. And you definitely get a sense that at least a few of them are into the adrenaline of it. That this is, you have to be a very particular kind of person um, to, to even choose this as a career and particularly to be a woman. And at the time that they began working, this was like the 1980s and 90s, there were not, they, they were the only ones, there, there were not female camera uh, people um, going into these sorts of, of war zones for places like CNN. Um, and so it's, it's a fascinating documentary. It's very moving. It's very difficult to watch in some places because you do see the footage that they took and, uh, and the experiences that they had. And it's, it's very difficult to watch. But, you know, it's important. And one of the things that I, I really liked about it is not just them talking about what it was like to be women, but the way that being a woman camera person affected the way that they filmed. And several of them discussed exactly what we've said before, which is that you can tell when a woman has taken the footage. You can tell when a woman is the eye that you're looking through. And um, their attitude was, uh, in a lot of ways, was that it, it was, it, it was about bearing witness. It was about taking these stories that many of which were being suppressed or being ignored and showing them to the world and saying like, this is what's happening. And that, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what other countries are doing to their people. And we have to see this, we have to look at it and we have to, you know, understand that this is what is happening right now. And, and it does actually have an effect on the world at large. So it's, it's a, a fantastic film. Um, like I say, not one of those, there were definitely places where I was like, I don't want to see this. <laughs> um, so not one of those that, you know, you go into lightly necessarily, there's definitely disturbing images, but um, I think a very necessary film in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, when you mentioned it before, I was like, okay, I gotta put that on my list and then I just haven't had a chance to watch it, but uh, I definitely will do that. It's not a terribly long film either. It's like, it's 75 minutes. So it's- That's that's one of the things that I've been surprised. This is my first time covering Tribeca and I've just been scrolling through the list of movies and I'm like, most of these, like, I don't think any of them are two hours. <laughs> so I'm like, huh. It's kind of nice. <laughs> it's very nice. It's like, and maybe that's just the selections this year. I don't know if this is normal, but- it's like there's always when you cover a film festival there's always some film that takes up like half a day <laughs> in the screening schedule yeah and it's exhausting <laughs> i i think that when it comes to I, tribeca has a huge slate in comparison with a lot of other film festivals they show a lot of films mm -hmm. um and i think that that's part of it that they do tend to they they also tend to select films that aren't going to wind up at other major festivals right because they're yeah. slightly they're slightly lower in terms of um you know prestige or whatever uh which means that sometimes they get some really fascinating films that aren't going to really be shown anywhere else you also we also tend to get things like american masters documentaries um and things like the national geographic documentaries uh i remember i think it was one year that what i think is one of the best documentaries of the year was la 92 Mm -hmm. um, and uh, oh, so was um, American American Factory, which yeah. uh, which won the Academy Award, I believe. <laughs> it did. 
Yes, so, <laughs> so, and that, that was shown to Tribeca also. So you get this, this really interesting variation, but as a result, yeah, you get shorter films. Documentaries generally tend to be shorter than, um, than feature films. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you're, you're trying to cover something in fairly quick succession. Yeah. So there were two that I watched that were bad. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> talk about kind of together. All right. <laughs> uh the first was italian studies with vanessa kirby uh, i have heard very mixed things about that film i was watching it and i was just like this was definitely written by a man <laughs> like sometimes you can just tell usually i can just tell anyway um so the setup of it is basically that there's this this woman who is a writer and for some reason she loses her memory like she kind of just goes into this sort of a trance and so she's wandering around new york city and she ends up meeting up with some kid like this teenage boy in a hot dog place and they get to talking but she's she's so like confused and 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 just weird that she's not really saying anything but he kind of ends up just inviting her to hang out and then she meets some of his friends and it goes back and forth in time i think but i'm not totally clear on that because really she's like the only difference is that her outfits changed but she still seems really confused so it's like i don't understand what's going on it starts off when when this memory thing happens sorry i'm going to spoil a little bit of this just because it starts off, and this is the reason for my 1 a.m. tweet about dogs in movies, because she has this little cute white dog, this little fluffy dog, and she chains it up outside of a store and goes into this store. And I'm just like, oh no, her dog's going to get stolen or something's going to happen to it. And while she's in the store, that's when this like episode begins for her. And so then she walks out of the store and turns and starts walking down the street and her little dog is still there and is watching her walk away and starts barking like, wait, come back. <laughs> and I'm like, what is happening right now? She just left her dog and she has no idea. And then I spent the entire movie worried about this dog and don't do that. Just like, don't do that to yourself. Do that, not do that to your audience. That is unforgivable. Like the, the, the question, see at the end of that film, just no. what happened to the dog? Yeah. It's like, and, you need to tell me, I don't care about people. You need to tell me what happened to that dog. I'll tell you off, uh, off the episode after we're done recording, but it's very distracting. This is the thing. And it's like, I don't know why any filmmaker thinks that that's a good storytelling choice because you're going to lose half your audience when you put them in that situation because i i was very confused by the movie it just wanders doesn't really go anywhere it has no narrative at all which can be fine except for that it doesn't like it goes back and forth in time a little bit it definitely does do that because you catch up with her and it's been a couple of years but it's like i have no idea really who this woman is i don't know if this is a common thing that happens to her i don't know if this was just a weird episode like i don't it just has all these questions that doesn't even try to answer and also her journey wandering around all night is just frustrating and weird and it it's not it's one of those movies where i feel like the uh the director and the, who is also the writer 
feels like, wow, I'm making like this really profound, like cinematic experience. And it's not that. That's unfortunate. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So there was that one. So yeah, what was the other one? <laughs> You're gonna laugh so hard I when know. I tell you what the other one was. <laughs> and it's not gonna surprise you that it was bad. But uh that is the movie uh false positive, which is going to be on Hulu, I think, next week. Hulu and A24 own the movie and they premiered it at Tribeca Mm -hmm. the reason I watched it is because Justin Theroux isn't it (laughs) (laughs) oh I have a story about Justin Theroux in a minute but yes go on (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so it's Justin Theroux and Alana Glazer and they play this couple who have been trying to conceive for a couple of years they just have not been successful and he just happens to know the best fertility specialist in the world because he's a doctor. And even though there's absolutely no evidence in the movie that he knows anything about medicine and doctoring, (laughs) it's like, yeah, you kind of forgot to actually give him medical knowledge in the script. But anyway, so he happens to know this doctor who is played by Pierce Brosnan and go yeah (laughs) and so they go and he's just like got all these assurance assurances for them it's gonna be fine everything's gonna be good we're gonna get you pregnant and then they do and she's pregnant with uh triplets and somehow at the appointment where he's confirming that she's pregnant he's also able to tell that early that it's twin boys and a girl separate and it's like yeah you can't you can't tell gender that early but okay whatever um like i've i've been through this so much with so many of my friends i feel like i knew way more about it than uh the writer and director but anyway (laughs) it was but it was funny because i was reading something i was reading an interview with the director john lee who apparently went through fertility stuff with his wife so it's like okay well he should know stuff but then also like husbands are kind of clueless and maybe he just wasn't paying that close of attention i don't know but anyway there's a lot of stuff that i'm just like yeah that's not how that works but okay whatever so after she's pregnant it turns into this sort of like it's an attempt at being kind of this rosemary's baby type of movie where she knows something's not right and um Oh, because one of the things that happens when she's pregnant is because it's because it's triplets and because it's a high-risk pregnancy, then they want her to do a selective reduction. So they have to choose between the twin boys or the the girl. And anyway, uh, so she makes they make the choice that they make, and and then she just keeps like having all these weird visions and she's hearing stuff, and then she starts like uh just seeing things that aren't there and and doing things and then people are like no you already did that you know it's just like it's so obvious that it's trying so hard to be this mystery like rosemary's baby and it just it falls apart so bad and it never is quite a thriller it's never scary ever 
but it's also like with the people that are making this movie and with the, the the you know the talent that they have here it could have been a really great dark comedy but they didn't lean into that either they just decided to try to just make a thriller and so it's it's bad it's really bad <laughs> and really i have seen some weird like oh this movie's great it's such a thrilling movie i'm like okay all right no it's not it's not it's terrible <laughs> all right so avoid false positive yeah which also (laughs) that title has nothing to do with the movie (laughs) because she's definitely pregnant oh my god yeah i you know what it may have actually been an advertisement for that film but i was watching hulu the other day and i i was like i was was watching i was just like who's that guy I don't, but I don't know who, like, I, I, I'm positive I've seen him in something else, but who is he? And, and then, like, uh, stirring Justin through, I was like, of course, it's fucking Justin through. Of course it is. Of course it is. Because whenever there is someone who I'm like, I don't know if who that is, it's always Justin through, which, you know, has definitely advanced because now I can actually see him. I just don't know who he is. Uh, <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> <laughs> all right so definitely avoid that well i i've got another one that um i actually really liked and it was funny because i watched this film i just this is just coincidence i watched this film and then her comments on the colbert uh on um whatever it's called now late night um with stephen colbert came out and i was like oh god <laughs> and, like this is all dovetailing um so i watched the rita moreno documentary uh rita moreno just a girl who uh, decided to go for it. And, and it's actually a really fascinating documentary. You know, one of the things I kind of expected it to be almost a puff piece that's like, oh, isn't Rita Moreno awesome, which she is. But it actually goes into like the issues that she dealt with in her life. The fact that, you know, she went to Hollywood when she was like 17 years old um, and, uh, and was immediately cast as in the role of big quotation marks, the native girl, whatever that happened to mean. And so, you know, she even talks about the fact that she made up this sort of vaguely foreign accent um, that has nothing to do with her own accent, but it was the accent that she used whenever she played the native girl. It didn't matter what she was actually supposed to be. You know, if she, she was native Hawaiian, she sounds like this. If she's Hungarian, she sounds like this. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting because the documentary actually goes into these issues of sexism and racism and the fact that, you know, this, this was, she was one of the first really major um, Latina stars in classical Hollywood. Uh, you know, I think that she's the, the first uh, Latina to win an Academy Award. Um, but she, she won it for this, you know, admittedly, and she admits it as well, this problematic performance um, in a problematic film. And, and it, this is interesting then to dovetail with the comments that she, that she later made, which she then rescinded, right? But this is a woman who has basically spent her entire career putting on a performance of what white people think she is supposed to be. Yeah. And she did this for a lot of her career. It was only in more like the 70s and 80s that she began to actually get to be the person that she is, not the person that she was supposed to be um, and the fantasy that she was supposed to be, particularly for for powerful white men. 
And so it's interesting then to kind of think about where she's at now and the, the issues that she doesn't recognize uh, in terms of her, her comments about In the Heights and, and how you know she, she was one of the ones that made a great deal of progress in Hollywood, but also obviously has a number of blind spots and has kind of spent, spent so much of her career being forced into this position of being someone that she isn't and having to be someone specifically for white people. Um, that she isn't, right? And that, that doesn't actually reflect who she is as an actress, as a performer. Uh, it, it's a really fascinating documentary. It is disturbing in places. Like she goes into some details about um, some of her experiences that are quite dark, uh, but it, it does come out kind of with this, in, with this sense of like, you know, investigating that period of Hollywood and talking about how incredibly racist it was. Um, some of the scenes that are shown from her films are just like, oh my God, like, you know, the, the treatment of her characters as, you know, again, this native girl um, and, and the attitude that Hollywood took towards her up even past uh, when she did West Side Story and had won an Oscar and then suddenly she was getting nothing but offers for gang films um, because there was still that mentality of like, that's all that she is. Um, it's a really good documentary. It's, it's very interesting. It's not a puff piece, which I quite liked. Um, and it definitely showcases who she is and, um, and her importance and also the fact that, you know, she's from a very different generation. So I, I do recommend it. Yeah, I really want to see it. I've been hearing about it for a little bit. I think it played at Sundance, which I did not cover this year. Um, and I just haven't had a chance to watch it. I think it's going to be, I think HBO has it and it'll be there some, at some point. Yeah, I it think. is, it is, you know, it is produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, which is something to note. But so I, if he has an agreement with, if his like production company has an agreement with um, HBO, it'll probably wind up there. It definitely feels like a kind of American masters documentary. Okay. Uh, it has that kind of, that, that sort of element to it. But um, like, I was surprised by how much it, it actually went into criticism of Hollywood. And she does not pull punches, I have to <laughs> say, uh, including about her very long and tumultuous relationship with Marlon Brando, which I was unaware of, but I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I've heard buzzing about that before, but I don't know any details, so. Well, she gives details. All right. <laughs> she gives details. And it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, she's just like, he was the most beautiful man in the world, basically. He was. Because <laughs> um, this, this was, you know, you also got to say, Rita Moreno banged Marlon Brando at the peak of Marlon Brando. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is not Godfather what, Marlon Brando. <laughs> this, this is like hot, hot Marlon Brando. Um, it was not, it, I mean, she goes into details about it. It was not a great relationship, which is hardly surprising when you know <laughs> things about Marlon Brando, but, um, but it obviously was a very important relationship for her as well. Wow. So, yes. Uh, so moving on, do you want to talk about the Lost Leonardo? Cause I think that that's yes. one that both of us have seen. Definitely. Let's talk about that one. 
So the Los Leonardo, which I got into last night just because I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And then I, and then I was just like embedded in it. Um, the Les Leonardo <laughs> is a, a documentary that's in English, but it's produced from, it was produced in Denmark. I think the director is Danish. Um, and it covers the discovery of the maybe possibly uh, last painting by Leonardo da Vinci, certainly one of the last ones that is going to be uncovered, uh, the Salvatore Mundi, uh, which was found for $1,100 in a New Orleans auction house and may or may not have been painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through this long, bizarre tale of like trying to authenticate this, trying to figure out where it came from, uh, the issues of provenance and um, and then also it the, the documentary then begins delving into the way in which the uh, the the people who are involved kind of people who want it to be Leonardo da Vinci and the people who don't want it to be Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> and kind of the uh, the points for and against it but also how this spirals out of control to such a great degree to the point that this is actually you know, becomes a major source of contention at the Louvre. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's a, I don't want to give too much away about it, but at the same time, like, it's such a bizarre and wild story. It's one of those stories where you're like, okay, now it's over. Like, but then this happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, so the story itself did not, but the, the, the experience of watching this felt a lot like when I watched the documentary Icarus, which won a, which won the Oscar a couple of years ago. And that one was, I don't know if you've seen it, but that one was a documentary that started off as, in fact, when they were originally trying to get financing, it was a documentary about Lance Armstrong and doping yeah, and cycling. Yeah. And then it turns into like, as they're, um, and the, the financiers who ended up actually paying for the movie originally told them like there's so many things out there about Lance Armstrong that's not interesting enough like if you have a different angle to go in come back we'd love to talk to you some more we think that you've got the bones of something interesting here it's just that we need something different and so then they started you know collecting more people to interview and they landed on this Russian doctor who uh had all this information for them about how these doping uh how the doping scandal happened within the world of cycling but he had a whole lot of other stories too and ends up like this ends up being the documentary that uncovers the entire russian doping scandal that gets russia kicked out of the olympics and it turns into this thriller because you're like, well, now the Russians are involved. This doctor's going to die. And <laughs> we still to this day have no idea like where this doctor is and if he's okay. But, um, but it's, it starts off as a movie that is like about one thing. And then it kind of becomes, as you learn more about the story, it becomes something different. And so that's where like the, the experience of watching it, I felt in some ways very similar watching the last leonardo because it starts off it's like okay it's this movie about some people disagreeing over whether this is you know authentically da vinci or just someone who really admired his style how does it end up in some random place in new orleans of all places you know and yeah and although i mean 
I have some theories about how that could happen, but uh, but then it just becomes something else, and then you end up with Russian oligarchs <laughs> in the <Yeah>. mix. <laughs> as soon as soon as as soon as the documentary was just like, and now Geneva, I was like, oh no. <laughs> as soon yeah. as you go to geneva then you're just like oh it's gonna get it's gonna get shady it's gonna get even shadier than it was before and then yes you get a russian oligarch it's like yep we're done yeah we're done. yeah this, this is like but yeah it's it's a wild story and it is very well told like it, it is, is told like a thriller mm -hmm. almost and yeah. and i like the fact that you get you know you get all these different perspectives and the the film doesn't really judge them per se you don't get the sense that it's it's saying yes this is a leonardo no it's not a leonardo but it's more like all of these people have different reasons for wanting it to be a leonardo for wanting it to not be a leonardo for and then at a certain point it almost doesn't matter anymore because it has taken on such a such a different meaning mm -hmm. um and and it's no longer about the provenance of the artwork or even the art itself because as numerous people point out this even if it is a Leonardo it's not that great yeah <laughs> it's not that good like it's it's you know maybe one of his later works it could be this is one of the reasons why some some people obviously think that it's a copy that it's a student or someone who admired him and you know maybe worked from the original or something like that mm -hmm. yeah but it, it, it's it really is just just a fascinating film and I admit I am a sucker for like for some reason I really like art thrillers like this art documentaries because the art world is so goddamn shady it, it really just is, is. Yeah. and it's people making shit up half the time <laughs> yep yep it's so true um so two two things first of all side note did you see that art heist documentary on Netflix the four-part series about the Boston um museum that got robbed uh no i haven't seen that one. Oh my gosh you need to watch it because i I've think you'll really I've like seen, it i've seen the art of the steel um and then and i can't remember what the other documentary is but it's about a a, a guy who basically keeps on kept on donating this forged artwork to <laughs> every museum nice oh my gosh i'm trying to remember what this was called and i know people are listening to this going it was this um art heist I'm gonna I, I'm gonna get this title for you because it'll make it easier for you. This is a robbery. That's what it's called. This is a robbery. It's a four four part series, I think, on Netflix. And um, yeah, I, I think you'll enjoy it if you like this kind of stuff. This is this is a fun one. Uh, but anyway, uh, the other thing that I was cracking up about <laughs> is that when it gets into the whole thing about the free ports. Yeah. I was like, oh, I understand this because of the movie Tenet. <laughs> the free ports are like a central part of the plot of the movie Tenet. And I was like, oh, I totally oh understand God. everything that's happening right now. Because see, I did fucking understand Tenet. It's just not a good movie. <laughs> so yeah, the, the Lost Leonardo, I think, is, is a good movie. Um, oh my gosh, so good. So and good. and it's bizarre and it's got some great personalities and i did like the fact that you pointed out that all all white male <laughs> critics are insufferable regardless yep. of uh of where where they're actually working so film critics art critics yes there, there's one for 
for me, there's one particular art critic that they talked to that I'm just like, I would, I would just want to punch you in the face. I, don't, I want you to be wrong just because you're so annoying. <laughs> yeah, like he's so obnoxious and he's so, I mean, he's got that thing that all white men really have and, and you know, is just that he's just convinced that he's right and you're not going to convince him otherwise no matter what, but he's just so smug about it and it's freaking annoying and i yeah i wanted to punch him in the face so but the last leonardo is a lot of fun it does bring up some interesting questions about things like art restoration you know that's an issue that i've had for a long time it's like okay so if you're fixing someone's painting then is there still their painting because now you've painted yeah. over it with paint that didn't exist 1500 you know 500 years ago that kind of stuff so it brings up a lot of of interesting questions and um conundrums and debates and it does so in such an accessible way that you don't have to know anything about art history or you know how art works in order to really be fully engaged in this documentary it's it's so good and it it deals with those issues also of, of the, the concept of social capital of cultural capital mm -hmm. of um you know what art actually means right because like, like i said at a certain point it's, it's no longer important. The art itself, the piece of art is, is not really the issue. It's, it's right. what it represents, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I do admit that at one point, so they were talking, like at one point they talk about, you know, there's, so there are artworks that are, is it a student of Leonardo's? Is it an acolyte of Leonardo's? Is it someone who admired Leonardo, you know, and, it, and depending upon who it is, or is it Leonardo himself? And depending upon who it is, then the value of the art changes. Yeah. Um, and I, I kept on thinking of this line in the film, How to, How to Steal a Million, which I don't know if you've seen, but it involves art forgery. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at one point, uh, the, the daughter who's played by um, Audrey Hepburn says, you know, uh, they're talking about the fact that her father is forging Van Gogh's. And, she says, yes, but the problem is it's not by Van Gogh. And he looks at her and says, are you saying mine is in any way inferior? <laughs> and I love that. It's just like, well, yeah, at, at a certain point, like, I mean, if it looks like a Van Gogh and it seems like a Van Gogh and it has the same meaning as a Van Gogh, then is it inferior? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So yes, The Lost Leonardo, um, I, I think that both of us really recommend it. Definitely. Uh, so anything else? Oh, well, we wanted to talk about hot dads. I completely, I almost completely yes. forgot about this. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> it is Father's so Day tomorrow. So it is Father's Day fun. tomorrow. Uh, and, and we wanted to briefly touch on, <laughs> briefly touch on hot dads. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. So who are some of the hottest dads? I want to start because this was also a question from at Noah underscore Saturn, who's the hottest movie dad who's also a great parent. Which is a and great I, question, I love that. And I, well, I think that to be a hot dad, you have to be a good parent, that's uh, my opinion. do you know? Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I, all right, I'll say the, what I consider the hottest movie dad, um, and he's also a great parent, is Gomez Adams. Yes. Gomez is a great father. He is a great husband. Um, to answer the Batman question, yes, he definitely does. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, like 100%, like all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And, 
and but he is actually a really good father you know his uh, I, I love it in um and i'm talking specifically about the films but honestly in the tv show as well uh but i really like it in adam's family values where him and morticia find out that their kids want to go to summer camp and it's a lie they don't actually want to go to summer camp but this is like anathema to the adamses but immediately they're like okay, you know, this is what they want there. You know, we want to give our children the opportunities to be what they want to be. So, okay, we'll send them to summer camp, even though they don't like it. They don't like the concept, um, but they, they're still there and they're like, oh, we're going to support our kids because this is what they want to do. And mm -hmm. I like that. And Gomez is a wonderful father. He cares about his children. He takes care of his children. Um, he, he cares about what happens to them. He's very present in their lives. And yeah, Gomez Adams is a superior dad. He is, he is like top tier. It does not get better than Gomez Adams. And that is a <laughs> perfect choice. <laughs> Love it. Yes. So what about you, Karen? Uh, what, what are some of your hot movie dads? So one of my recent ones is um, Winston Duke and Us. Ooh, yeah. He's I agree with that. hot, first of all. Like, he meets the criteria of being an attractive dad. But he's also, you know, even when he's scared, he's going to take care of business. He's going to save his family. He's going to protect them. And, and obviously, mom is there, too. And mom's kind of a badass. But there's a lot of reasons why her story is much more complicated. Um, but I just he's funny. Like, he's the goofy, dorky dad that everybody wants, you know, and 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 uh, yeah. I love him. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one of mine that I think we may have mentioned this before, actually, because I think we've had this conversation before, but John Corbett in To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Oh, yeah, for sure. Who is sex positive dad. He is a hot dad. And he's really, again, it's he's a good father. He's really caring. He cares about his kids. Um, you know, he doesn't want to judge them, but he does want to be certain that they're safe. And I, I really, yeah, I really mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, a dad of slightly younger kids is Jude Law in The Holiday. I oh, mean, okay. Mr. Napkinhead, come on. That's just freaking adorable. <laughs> and he just, it's like when, when you find out, like, cause you don't know what's going on with him he's just kind of like disappears and stuff but when you find out that it's that he's a widower and he's got kids and he's trying to, to be just this like awesome dad and it's just like ugh, just stop talking because you're just getting hotter and hotter by the second <laughs> he's like i have a cow in the backyard i milk it for milk and i learned to sew and it's just like oh, stop stop <laughs> um stanley tucci in easy a Stanley Tucci and everything, but yes, in Easy well, A yes. for sure. I mean, always Stanley Tucci, but in Easy A, he is playing a hot dad. He um, really is. And I, I like the fact that he, he's funny. He obviously loves his kids. He obviously loves his wife and he jokes with them, you know, like there's, I, I like the fact that in more, in some more recent films, we've had more of the, of these, not dads who are judging their kids, but dads who are actually like, trying to just be supportive and be there when their kids need them and look out for them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, dealing with the fact, just like, honey, are, are you, you, do you need to talk to us about anything? 
yeah like he doesn't push her but he he also opens the door to so that she knows like hey i've noticed some things that are maybe concerning and if you want to talk about them i'm here for you yeah so but also stanley tucci and everything obviously yeah yeah for sure especially have you watched his um italy show like his his food travel show on i haven't yet no oh my gosh lauren do yourself a favor (laughs) like find it it's got to be streaming online somewhere oh yeah no it's it's ridiculous i love him anyway um another one uh another recent one is john cho in searching yes definitely um i mean hot dad who's a single dad who is not he's gonna leave no stone unturned to find his missing daughter and he does not take the police word like their official story for it. he knows something's up because he knows his kid and even though he's finding out that there are things that she has not felt comfortable talking to him about he's like okay that's something that you know noted and so you get the sense that like whatever's gonna happen like if his daughter turns back up he's gonna be a lot more open so that she can come to him in the future so he's also learning and growing along the way while he's terrified and about losing his little girl i have kind of an outlier uh and and i just thought of this because i was like oh yeah he is a father in that movie um (laughs) in i i don't have you seen the thin man films with Uh, william powell and myrna loy i've seen the first one so in the second one no third one um they have a baby and one of the things that i really like about it and this is why i think that william powell is qualifies as a hot dad is that it's one of the very few films from that period where you actually see a father like holding and caring for his his baby right so he like absolutely adores this kid at one point like uh nora just like puts the kid down in the bed with him and like walks off because she needs to do something and he just like cuddles this little baby Aww. and you know looks up look you know, kind of wakes up slightly looks at him and like cuddles this little baby it's really really cute and very sweet so i think he would qualify nick charles is a hot dad <laughs> <laughs> i will accept that yes um I would be remiss if I did not mention my man who this is where I say that you can be a hot dad, but also not a great parent because Tom Cruise in uh, war of the world is a terrible parent, <laughs> <laughs> but he's also hot. So yeah, like, and, and, you know, I mean, he's all another one that's he's growing by the end of the movie. You get the sense that like, he's going to be a lot more present in his kids' lives, but he the the world has to almost end for him to get to that <laughs> point. <laughs> well, and to that end, Chris Pine in A Wrinkle in Time. Oh yes, um, obviously sure. he is a very hot dad because he's Chris Pine mostly, um, but he's a terrible father. Like he I, and and again, I, you do get the sense that he's going to try to be better, and that he knows that he's made mistakes, um, and that he's fucked up a lot, but yeah uh he he is also very hot so. mm-hmm. yeah well and and that one's interesting too because like i know so many people in stem fields that are like oh well we're just bad with people and it's like oh he's actually a perfect example of that and he's also very hot while he's being terrible with people like not having any people skills uh, so i don't have any more do you um i think Atticus Finch is kind of hot. 
<laughs> and <laughs> okay i don't know i ain't kind of uh josh hamilton in eighth grade is another one mm-hmm. yeah I see that. um and as far as cute dorky dads colin firth in what a girl wants oh that's true i'd forgotten that he's a dad in that he is and he's such a dork and i just love it he's so cute and fun (laughs) (laughs) all right well on that note on that note let us close out this episode of citizen dame we talked about all kinds of things this time around um i think we've we've just really run the gamut on this one and it's been so much fun as it has been so thank you so much for listening um thank you so much as always to all of our patrons um, who include Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Carriata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much, guys, for continuing to support us. Um, if you want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizendame. And we have some fun things coming up. We're going to have a new bonus episode for this month. Um, we're redesigning the logo, so we're going to be sending some things out, and um, and so we've got a lot of fun things that are, are going to be happening. I know we keep on promising that, but it is actually happening. Uh, you can also support us at our Ko-Fi. It's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you just want to throw us a few dollars and not make the, the Patreon commitment. And we have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where you can buy buttons and masks and all sorts of fun things. Um, you can check us out on our website, that's citizendamepod.com, where we will have some Tribeca reviews going up. Uh, I've got a few more Blu-ray reviews to do. I think Karen has a few reviews that she's going to have up. Yep. And uh, and we're going to probably try to do our top fives again, because people seem to like those. Yes. Um, you can also get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, issues, if you're happy particularly if you're, if you're a patron, you're having any issues with downloading things or logging into um, anything, please let us know. Uh, and we are also on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod, and we are on Letterboxd um, at Citizen Dame. And we're, we have a number of lists up there already, including an ongoing master list of great movies directed by women so that men will stop asking us about that. <laughs> Uh, already there are a whole bunch of good ones on there, but most of it is just me sitting there going like, who else is good? (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot about so-and-so and and I forgot (laughs) about so-and-so. There's just so many, it's easy to forget people. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid posting um, every single movie by a particular female director and just choosing ones, but at the same time, like, I'll just put all of Ida Lupino's stuff up there. (laughs) Yep um so you can check us out there that's at citizen dame and of course you can get in touch with us individually i am on twitter and instagram at lh business karen where are you i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson and i think that will close this out so we will talk to you guys later bye do you think she minded of course not she adores you i'm making such a mess of things Gomez, how do you do it? How can I be like you? How can I be suave, woo her, admire her, make her feel like she's the most sublime creature on earth? Yes, that's it. We're back. Nose is powdered.
Perfection achieved. We are the luckiest brothers on earth. We are unworthy of such splendor, undeserving of such radiance. 